Open your Bibles, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 11. We'll read the first two verses before we jump into our text for today. Our text for today will be Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19. But let's begin in verse 1 of Hebrews 11. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. Now, jump forward to verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Let's pray together. O Lord, your word is to be desired more than gold, much more than fine gold, even sweeter than the honeycomb. And I pray you give us an appetite this morning to desire to know you from it. In it, you've revealed yourself to us in a most gracious way, that we could have in our hands your own revelation of yourself, that we could know you in truth. We're grateful for that. So help us today for the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So today we have three verses, and I've broken it into three headings, three very simple headings for an outline. Point one will be the God's testing of Abraham's faith. In the first section of uh, verse 17, God's testing of Abraham's faith. Point two will be God's use of Abraham's faith, mostly in verse 8, 17b and 18. And point three will be God's rewarding of Abraham's faith. So God's testing of Abraham's faith, God's use of Abraham's faith, and God's rewarding of Abraham's faith. Very simple outline. Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis 22, because as we get into the first part of verse 17, we'll see the author of Hebrews is drawing us into a familiar story, and he expects his readers are well familiar with this text, particularly with this episode in Abraham's storyline, but we'll want to refresh our memories of it. This, indeed, is one of the most dramatic storylines in all of the Bible. So we pick it up, Genesis 22. Let's read the last verse of Genesis 21, verse 34. Genesis 21, 34 says, Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. And I'm going to interject some commentary as we read this. So this depicts the Christ to come. Abraham's sojourn in the land of the Philistines depicts Christ who would sojourn as a stranger and an exile on the earth. Chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham. You might ask, what is God testing here? And obviously it's Abraham's faith that's being tested. And he says to Abraham, Abraham. Abraham is quick to recognize and respond to the voice of God. He was a friend of God, and he said, Here I am. God said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac. This is the only begotten son of promise. It's not that Abraham didn't have other children, but God mentions Isaac as the only son, meaning the only begotten son of promise. Take your son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Let's hold it right there for a second. God is saying to Abraham, take your son and bring him to a mountain 
and offer him as a burnt offering. This is a shocking command from the Lord, and it must have shaken Abraham's faith to his core. It puts Abraham between the horns of an extremely intense dilemma. I mean, on the one hand, no parent in their right mind would ever hurt their own child. That wouldn't be considered sane. And on the other hand, someone who believes in God doesn't want to disobey God. These two intense points have have impaled him, if you will, between these horns of the dilemma. And it must have been a horrifying thing for Abraham even to have considered this. And this was the son that God had told him would bring the fulfillment of all his promises. So why is God commanding Abraham now to kill the son of promise? Wouldn't that kill the promise along with him? It would be hard to overestimate the intensity of this dilemma that Abraham is facing. It must have pressed down on his heart with an overwhelming weightiness. There must have been some moment in time when he's pondering this command and he just doesn't understand it. He doesn't know what to do. Maybe he's confused. And I'd like to suggest if this, were dilemma, if this particular dilemma were pressed on any of us, it would tear us to pieces. We'd probably have a mental breakdown over it. I mean, is God commanding what must never be done to be done? And beyond the unimaginable component of the dilemma that we just mentioned would be the additional temptation to question God's own goodness. Why would God, this good God that Abraham has come to know, ever ask such a thing as this? Is God really good? How can he ask this? I mean, I saw on a bumper sticker on the way in, God is pro-life. What would the true God of creation, why would the true God of creation require this of, of, of Abraham what the false gods of the pagan nations around him would require? Human sacrifice. Child sacrifice. Why would the God of life ask Abraham to put his son to death? It seems so incongruent with who God was in Abraham's understanding. So we can only speculate about how severely this command would have tested Abraham's faith. But we see as we move on in the text that Abraham believes in the Lord and obeys his voice. It says in verse 3, Abraham rose early the next morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. He's obeying the command. And for three long days, Abraham walks, traveling next to his beloved son, knowing full well what God had asked of him. I don't know how I could imagine that, walking for three days, having that burden on my heart. Verse 4, On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his young man, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the word of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. This could be considered a picture of Jesus who carried his own cross of wood to his own sacrifice. And Abraham himself, he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them together, up the mountain, Isaac carrying the wood and Abraham carrying the fire and the knife. In verse 7, Isaac says to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, 
But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? It suddenly strikes him. Isaac is probably at least in his late teens at this point, and he knew well there needed to be a sacrifice, but there's none to be found. Verse 8, so Abraham, apparently not wanting to alarm Isaac, says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. He doesn't tell him the whole story. So Abraham, by hiding the impending human sacrifice from Isaac, is incidentally speaking a prophecy about the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And so they went, both of them together. In verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar and on top of the wood. And we could think this is much like Jesus being fastened to his own altar of wood. We can see some parallels there between what's happening to Isaac and what happened to Jesus. Then Abraham reached out his hand, and he took the knife, and he's ready to slaughter his son. Abraham's not putting on a show here. He's ready to actually slay his son. His arm is raised, and he's going to plunge the knife down into him. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord stays his hand by calling to him from heaven, saying, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Verse 13, Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son or in the place of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. It was no coincidence that there was a ram caught in the thicket at that moment. The Lord provided. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. This Mount Moriah corresponds to the same mount we today would call the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. No coincidence. Of course, Jesus was executed outside the walls of the city and not in that exact spot, but it's no coincidence. Verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So God not only tests Abraham's faith, we turn back to Hebrews eleven seventeen. In the next point of our outline, he's going to use Abraham's faith in a grand display of theology. Point two, God's use of Abraham's faith. We'll read it again. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. So after this intense testing of Abraham's faith, God is now using Abraham's faith in an incredible display of theology. This is going to stand in the record in the annals of history, what has just occurred. 
this dramatic event. Let's consider for a second how God is displaying theology in this event. We noted in the Genesis account that Isaac carried the wood for his own offering, and Isaac was fastened to the altar of the sacrifice, both of which might remind us of Christ. But in this account, is Isaac really depicting Christ? Or is he depicting someone else? It's the ram caught in the thicket that depicts a substitutionary sacrifice, not, not Isaac on the altar. It's the ram who takes Isaac's place and the ram who dies. So what is Isaac depicting? Isaac is really more depicting us here, you and I. He depicts the sinner that deserves judgment for their sins. And he depicts that the wages of sin is death. And we all have to come to death because it's appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment. That's what he's depicting. The sinner's need to die. The sinner's death-worthiness. He also depicts our need for a substitute to take our place. Surely Abraham didn't want to kill his son. Could there have been another way? Abraham didn't know until that moment when he saw that ram. He was really going to slay his son. So Isaac is, is depicting the need for a substitution. Who can rescue us from our death-worthiness? He also depicts our need for resurrection. If we're to die, what then? If it's appointed unto man once to die, all of us have to die. What then? We need the hope of resurrection. And what about Abraham? Who does he depict here in this great theological display? Abraham's faith leads him to be used by God to depict God the Father himself, the role of God the Father in our redemption. Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his own son gives us a picture of God's own willingness to sacrifice his own son. Can you imagine a more vivid demonstration of substitutionary sacrifice in the Old Testament. So when Abraham's faith is being tested, it's representing the greater historical event to come. It's a preview. It's a telling in advance of the story, of the greatest story. And when God the Father stood in the same situation Abraham found himself in, when his son was about to be slain on the cross... There was no one greater there. There was no other sacrifice. There was no one who could stay God's hand and say, stop. God actually goes through with the sacrifice, doesn't he? He actually slays his own son. Yes, it's God who put his son to death. We could say, you know, Jesus was killed through the instrumentality of evil men, yes. But Peter tells us Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Nothing accidental about it. The instrumentation of, of evil men is just coincidental. He was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. 
Paul says it this way, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Isaiah says it this way, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. God indeed provides the true lamb for the ultimate sacrifice. He slays his own son in our place as our substitute. Though we're the ones who deserve to be slain, he takes his pure son, the one who always obeyed, the one who always pleased him, the very one who did not deserve to die, and he slays him. And why would God do that? And we know the answer to that is manifold. Of course, he slays his son to rescue us from the domain of darkness. He slays his son to save us from the righteous wrath to come that we deserve. But even more than that, he does it for the demonstration of his own righteousness at this present time so that God would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Spurgeon asked the question, how can a just God, perfectly just, justify the unjust. How can God do that and maintain His justice? God does so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He also called. He will reveal Himself. He will be fully known. Every attribute of God must be known. If God is in the business of benevolent self-revelation, the very best thing he can give us is himself, the knowledge of himself in his fullness. This is no plan B. Why else does God do this in the slaying of his son? He does so to make known his love. God is love. God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. He so loves and He so desires to demonstrate Himself and His love and to give us hope. What does that mean in John 3.16? God so loved the world. Is it indicating some emotional pining? Like God has a crush on us. He's so enamored with our, our specialness that he just can't help himself. That he has to do whatever it takes to win us over. It's not that at all. It's not the sappy love you hear about in love songs. Or the fake love you hear in self-serving people. What does it mean? God so loved the world. You could say it this way. In what manner does God love the world? How has He loved? He loves by sacrificing His own Son. A love so deep that it has to be demonstrated. It just can't be told. It has to be shown. It has to be seen in reality. Believers, do you realize what your Lord has done for you? 
In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, the satisfaction of God's justice for our sins. His justice will be satisfied, and His love will also be known. And that's why it's sometimes said that the cross is where justice and mercy meet. Justice and love meet. It could never be done in any other way. God in his own infinite perfections only acts in the most perfect way possible at all times. The cross is the only way. It's the perfect way for God to be known and for God to rescue us. So in Hebrews 11, we're reminded that the Father's love and sacrifice is seen by demonstration in this tangible, personal history of Abraham living out his faith. God is using the life of Abraham to depict a storyline that tells his own. It's amazing how God uses human life to communicate truth. You remember in Hebrews 1 where it talks about, you know, in... in, Many times, in many ways, God spoke to us through the prophets. Before, He spoke to us in His Son. He's speaking to us through people. The Old Testament accounts of Joseph and Daniel and David and Abraham and all of these great saints, we see parts of their storylines depicting truths about God. He's enveloping and encapsulating truth tangibly in an incarnate form in people. And that even continues on in the church age. You know, the church doesn't stop at the end of Acts 28. If you've ever read the Fox's Book of Martyrs or church history, you see God is continuing to do that, demonstrate himself through the lives of people like you and I. So God is using Abraham's faith in this grand display of theology. And he also rewards the obedience of Abraham's faith which is our next point in point three, back in Hebrews 11. Verse 19. Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And that phrase in the ESV, figuratively speaking, is rendered by the NAS as, as a type. He receives him back as a type, a prototype of resurrection. The Greek actually would translate it more literally as a living parable. He receives him back as a living parable, a type of resurrection. You think about Abraham for a second. Before this event, he's really not seen God perform miracles other than the birth of his son, the miraculous conception of his wife in their old age. Abraham hasn't been following God based on signs and wonders. There's no indication of that. He trusts God's voice and and the truth about God alone. I mean, Abraham's never heard of a guy named Lazarus, of course. He doesn't know about resurrection. So how is it he develops this confidence in God that verse 19 speaks about? Considering that God is able even to raise Isaac from the dead. He trusts God with the life and death of his son, believing that the one who gives life could overcome death itself. There's remarkable faith. If you think about his faith, and what it says in Hebrews 11.6 about faith, and we inverted that last time, it is possible to please God with faith. Why? Well, first we must believe that he exists, but that's not enough. 
The verse goes on. And that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. So it's not enough just to believe that God exists. You have to believe truths about God that are accurate. Your faith has to be informed. You look at the nature of Abraham's faith. His faith was informed enough that he could extrapolate, based on what he knew about God's nature, that this God who gives life is able to overcome death. His faith led him to that conclusion. He didn't have a doctrinal statement that taught him that. His faith in God taught him that. So because Abraham's faith illumined his heart to the nature of of the God he believed in, he knew this author of life he'd come to know must even be capable of raising the dead. Abraham's faith gave him the assurance about the person of God. He was trustworthy. It enabled him to know God in truth and truly trust God, even with the life of his son, with all the promises God had given him. And he does receive his son back from the jaws of death as this living parable of resurrection, right? When he went up on that mountain, he thought he was going to lose his son, and he didn't really know what God was going to do, but he trusted God, and he received his son back as, as an immediate reward, but not the only reward. If you remember what the Lord concluded about Abraham's faith back in Genesis 22, I'll, I'll read it for you again. He first determined to bless Abraham before he even knew Abraham. And he gives Abraham these covenantal promises before this event ever transpires. God has told Abraham on multiple occasions, I'll bless you, I'll multiply you, I'll make you the father of many nations. Try to count the sand on the seashore, try to count the stars. You have no idea the magnitude of blessing that is going to flow from your progeny. He's made these promises to Abraham over and over. But now after Abraham... um, his faith is tested, the Lord declares again. He says, because you have done this, because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. He repeats this promise again. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So he repeats the blessing before and after Abraham's obedience. Not just based on God's foreknowledge that Abraham would obey, but because God crowns his own graces. He rewards his own gifts. He grants faith, and then through the obedience of faith, he rewards the obedience of faith. He crowns his own graces. Why would God reward us at all in heaven? What do you have that you've not received? What do you have to boast about? Are you going to go to heaven and say, here's what I did, Lord? No. But yet, he's still going to reward you based on the things he's given you and the enablements he's, he's equipped you with. So this tested and proven faith of Abraham, whereby he believes that God will fulfill his promises, even in the face of death, poetically becomes one of the very means God uses to fulfill the promises. God uses Abraham's obedience to fulfill the promises. He says, because you've done this, I will do this. So God not only tests Abraham's faith, he uses Abraham's faith in a grand display of theology. He also rewards the obedience of Abraham's faith as a prototype of resurrection and as a basis of continual blessing. That's just where it started. In faith, there's great reward. The the fullness of that reward won't be realized until glory. All these die in faith, Hebrews says. We die in faith. 
At the point of our death, do you expect you will receive all the fullness of the promises that God has, has filled your heart with, the hope that you have? No, that's just where it, where it begins. And so our faith looks beyond the temporal to the eternal. It sees through the veil of death to what lies beyond it. The blessing just starts here. And you might ask, how, how should we apply this? How could my faith ever glorify God the way Abraham's did? Well, for one thing, the more you dispel the bondage of wrong ideas about God, and the more those are eradicated from your understanding, the more you come to know God in truth for who He really is. And then the more you'll grow to trust the real Him. He doesn't want you to conceive of Him in some fictitious way. He doesn't want to be worshipped like He's some kind of sugar daddy in the sky that exists just to meet your needs and serve you. That's not how He will be known. And this is why He endows us with faith, so we can truly know Him. He's the God who's able to make good on all His promises to you. He proves again and again how worthy He is of our complete trust. He is able to even raise you from the dead. Do you believe that? So through all the trials of life, which, by the way, are designed to purify and strengthen and test your faith, you'll learn to trust Him more. Even when you come to the hour of your death, you will still trust Him more. Have you ever seen the sweetness of a Christian's passing who is trusting in the Lord? Who said, Jesus plus nothing is my everything. Have you ever seen an unsaved person die in fear and trembling with no assurance? Contrast that, the one with no faith facing death, the one with faith in Christ facing death with joy and anticipation. Better to depart and be with Christ. But Paul says, I'll stay, you know, and help you for a while. But I would rather be with Jesus right now. That's faith. Saved souls are drawn in faith to trust God in a most unique way. And because of that, we bear His image in a most unique way. We come to know Him and love Him in ways that we never could have if God didn't discipline us through the testing of our faith. Consider it joy when you encounter trials. Why? The testing of your faith is proving what it really is. That's why we can consider that joy. For those of us who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, we individually come to know God through the personal storyline He's given each of us. We all have a unique story. As we live like strangers and exiles on the earth ourselves, we learn as we go along to hate the sin within and to hate the sin without. That's easy. And we grow in our appetite for truth and holiness the affections of our souls enlivened to desire what God desires. And we say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Lord. We learn to hate what he hates. The things we used to love, I don't do them no more, as the old gospel hymn says. As Christ loves his bride and gave himself up for her, so we learn to love his church and give of ourselves for her good. 
Not, as it says in Ephesians, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. Don't come to church to impress anybody. We come as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will. As to the Lord, not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. You don't have to worry that the Lord's going to forget your list of things you've done for him. You don't have to worry about that. He is a rewarder of those who seek him, it says in Hebrews 6. He is a rewarder. He rewards his rewards. He crowns his gifts. There's no limit to his generosity. I'm going to ask you a question. What would happen if Hebrews 11 contained your name, where it says, by faith, Abraham? You just insert your name there. By faith, you. What would it say after that? What would follow that? You know, only God knows, and we need to make hay while the sun shines because our lives are short. But there is a story that God is going to tell through the faith He's given us. In the classic book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer says, Life becomes an awesome thing when you consider that we're living in the presence of an omnipotent, omniscient Creator. I like to riff off that just a little bit. Let's, let's embellish it and say it this way. Life becomes an awesome thing when we consider that each of our faith storylines is being recorded for the glory of God in heaven. Life becomes an awesome thing when you realize the opportunity we have to glorify God. If, like Abraham, you have an enduring faith, your story doesn't end at the closing of the earthly chapter, does it? The adventure just gets better. Your storyline will continue and culminate in God's kingdom as one who lives everlastingly to extol God's glory. By faith, you will become a unique trophy to His grace, something that He will display in heaven and say, see what I did in this one. Look what I did in that one. You'll be, your life story will be like a multifaceted gemstone, each facet reflecting his own glory back to him, telling a story of an event in your life where he came through and, and, and secured you and persevered you. And these, these beams of light shining back, his patience, his mercy, his love, his grace as it reflects back off you to him. So really, the entire population, the entire population of redeemed humanity in heaven will see the faith story that God has written for you. Men and angels in heaven will rejoice to see everything the Lord has done throughout your life. You think your life is insignificant? Not if you're in Christ. When Jesus says there's joy in the presence of angels, the angels of God in heaven over one sinner that repents, we always think of that in terms of evangelism. Somebody gets saved, there's joy in heaven, the angels are rejoicing. So-and-so got converted. You know, that's not the end of the story. The joy continues on when all of heaven will praise the one who saved you. What about your arrival there? What about after you pass through that river and you're on the other side? Will there be rejoicing when you enter? the Lord's rest, and you start to sing about the one who saved you and cared for you, made you his own and kept you, you add your voice to that heavenly chorus. 
The rejoicing's not going to stop. The storyline of your faith will be like a new song in heaven that resounds with his praise. And I think we'll all rejoice to sing each other's songs. And we'll all come together in a great symphony of God's adoration. If you think about the scale and scope of God's redeemed, the millions of souls he has saved over human history, if each one of those was in Hebrews 11, I think it would be a long chapter. But if each one of us had a book written about all that God has done for us, and they were put on some seminary shelf in heaven, I think the library would be inexhaustible for us. You could pull anybody's story off that shelf and say, what did God do for this one? In a sense, we're going to be those books. What are we going to do when we fellowship in heaven? We're going to talk about what the Lord has done for us. You think you're going to have something in common with angels? Oh, yeah. You're going to have some new friends because they're going to say, Tell me what the Lord has done for you. Tell me what you learned about Him. Tell me what it was like to go through this and to come out the other side trusting in God. They haven't had the same experience as we have. They're curious to know. Why do you think they watch the church? They want to see what God is doing. Why are they going to want to know you? What's interesting about you in heaven? Boring old you. You have a God that they want to know more. And you're going to ask Him the same thing. What was it like? When Satan fell, and you lost your angelic brethren in that terrible, terrible fall, and you saw them condemned, irredeemably condemned, what was that loss like to lose your family members, your friends? How did you react? Did you recognize that it was God who preserved you in holiness and kept you from falling? How did you come to know God more? Did you learn of his terrifying justice? of his wrath against evil? Did you learn things you'd never seen before? What did you learn when you watched Adam and Eve in the garden and you saw them fall? You're asking the angel, what was it like to watch Adam and Eve in the garden? And they fell. And you remembered all your angelic brethren fell. And now you see Adam and Eve fall. Were you afraid that they had fallen irredeemably? What did you think when you saw God cover them with the the skins of an animal sacrifice. How you must have wondered about God's mercy and his patience. And how you must have wondered, how is God going to remain just if he doesn't judge these people? Angels live to ponder the unfolding revelation of God in redemptive history, just like we should. Right? So this is why the author of Hebrews refers to these examples of faith. This is what a life of true faith points to. As we watch God with never-ending anticipation of what he will reveal about himself next, we'll be filled with endless amazement and never-ending wonder as we stand awestruck, beholding him face to face. Our hearts bursting with adoration and unrestrained joy. We're going to have a new capacity for more joy than we've ever experienced. We have to be capacitated with new capabilities to even show up there. All of our sin has to be eradicated, or we're never going to step foot in God's pure kingdom. The radical transformation that has to happen to us when we die must include new capacity for joy, new capacity to know who God is. It must. Because God is so infinite. 
We're going to live in total fulfillment and perfect contentment because we're living in the presence of God's unfolding, never-ending, benevolent self-revelation. There's nothing boring about heaven. If you think about it, if God is infinite and we're finite and He continues to unfold Himself in heaven, there'll be no end to what we can learn about Him and what we can know and what we can see. The wonders of His creative genius, the beauty of His artistry, the way He expresses His love in heaven. It's unfathomable. It's inconceivable right now. So we need new capacities, don't we? In heaven, it will become clear how our personal storylines tie in and become one with His eternal story because it will be shown that our life was designed, the very design intent of our life, the focal point of our purpose is to give glory to God and show His story. He's like a painter who embeds his signature in every work of art that he makes. So the author of every life story will leave the indelible mark of his authorship in all of our faith. And so we'll forever testify of his glory. You think of this incredibly intense, dramatic demonstration of the person of God in this one episode in Abraham's life. And you think about that multiply by millions and millions of untold redeemed souls. I don't see any boredom in that. It's hard to imagine a more dramatic event than the testing of Abraham's faith. But remember, his story told in advance the greatest story that we've ever heard on earth. It's a picture of the gospel itself. That God would slay his own son to save our souls and to reveal himself to us. It's not depicting some theoretical theology. It's real. The person of God. And it has to be in experience, not just understood. So I want to ask if you've experienced the grace of God in your soul, whereby He has implanted faith in your heart to know Him and trust Him in a way that gives you assurance and confidence that you really do know Him in Christ. If you've never experienced that, and it must be experienced, pray to God directly. That's who you go to. It's like the guy in the Gospels. Lord, I want to believe. Help my unbelief. Pray and ask God who gives grace with immeasurable generosity in Christ. Jesus says it when he invites people to come unto me. He says, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Are you burdened with your own sin? Are you frustrated that you can't even behave the way you wish you would? Are you burdened down by your own troubles and sins? Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. You pray to Christ. In closing, let's listen to these scriptural excerpts together. Beginning with Romans 4, it sums up this whole picture. Paul reminds us that our salvation depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. If God has given you faith, you share the faith of Abraham. He's the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. Not genetically. He's the father of many nations as the father of faith. If you have faith, he's your greatest granddaddy over there. Okay, he's the, and, and here he says, 
I've made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, he gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, Abraham believed that about God. And he believed that he would become the father of many nations as he'd been told, so shall your offspring be. No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God. For he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. If you have faith, it will be counted to you as righteousness. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. 2 Corinthians 4 says it this way, Since we have the same spirit of faith, we also believe, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into his presence. From 1 John 3, Beloved, We are God's children even now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself, even as He is pure. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we are grateful for this account of Abraham and how clearly it depicts the love that you demonstrate in the giving of your son. We're overwhelmed just trying to conceive of what your love must mean to us. And we possess these treasures in just jars of clay for now, but we ask that you'd help us And give us the light of the knowledge of your glory in the face of Christ. Lord, your ultimate glory is our ultimate good. And so we ask that you would continue to reveal yourself to us through the faith story of our lives. As you test our faith and you give us trials and you enable us to trust in you, we pray that we would grow in our appetite to know you more and and to thrive on your own glory. Your glory is our good. We pray that you'd help us. In Jesus' name, amen.